evening, morning, or afternoon, my lovely listeners. I hope the day is treating you well. Some of you may have noticed that I've been pretty quiet on social media lately, but never fear, I haven't forgotten you. It's just that I'm about to graduate, and I'm in a gallery exhibition at the moment, and life was slightly overwhelming for a bit there, so I'm very sorry. Hopefully it won't happen again. Now, I didn't do a Twitter poll for today's episode topic. That's because I want to unpack some common tropes that often affect queer characters in media, and I want to be able to refer back to them in future episodes. The tropes I'm going to talk about probably won't be surprising to you if you've seen more than a few movies and TV shows that contain queer characters. I also want to talk about the devastating one-two punch of these tropes when delivered in the same piece of media. Content warning for discussion of death and um, violent murder. Spoilers will be tough in this episode, by the way, because I'm talking common themes across a wide range of media. So if I say spoilers for XYZ, you kind of already know what's gonna happen, but I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, spoiler alert for Outlander. Silence of the Lambs, the James Bond film Skyfall, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Cruella Madoka Magica, and Madoka Rebellion, and a couple of Disney movies. I don't really talk about the plot of those, but I mention them in passing. The first of these tropes is commonly referred to as bury your gaze. As the name suggests, bury your gaze is when queer characters die tragically in fiction, usually to evoke an emotional response from audiences. Now, of course, no person is immortal, death is a big part of life, so it makes sense that we want to explore that in fiction. It's the sheer numbers of queer characters that die in comparison to straight characters that's the problem for me. Autostraddle author Reese has been putting together an online list of all the dead queers on television since last year. 109 gay and bisexual male characters on television are dead. 188 lesbian and bisexual female characters are dead. Both lists are still growing with further internet submissions. If that doesn't seem like a lot of dead queers to you, consider percentages. Only 4.8% of characters were LGBTQ on TV in 2016. According to the GLAAD report, that's Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, uh, that's 142 total for 2016. So more queer people have died on television shows than were even present in the last year on television. Let that one sink in. Of course, trans and non-binary people haven't been counted in these statistics, but you can bet your ass that if a trans woman shows up in a crime show, she's probably dead. The absence of statistics on the wider queer community is probably more due to the lack of any kind of rep at all for these groups, rather than this trope not affecting their portrayal in media. So, how did we get here? The practice of burying your gaze can be traced back to the 1930s motion picture producers and distributors of America, who released something called the Hayes Code. 
Now, I am talking specifically in Western cinema here, by the way, guys. Um, the US has influenced a wide range of Western media, so I think it is very relevant to, to talk about in terms of the stuff that's coming out of Hollywood, and it definitely affects uh, the way we in New Zealand build our movies. So, The Haze Code was a code of practice that Hollywood films had to follow in order to be released. I'll link to it on Twitter for those interested, but it has a few gems that I want to share with you. Mankind has always recognized the importance of entertainment and its value in rebuilding the bodies and souls of human beings. But it has always recognized that entertainment can be of a character harmful to the human race and, in consequence, has clearly distinguished between entertainment which tends to improve the race, or at least to recreate and rebuild human beings exhausted with the realities of life, and entertainment which tends to degrade human beings or to lower the standards of life and living. Correct entertainment raises the whole standard of a nation. But what is correct entertainment? Well, the code has a lot to say on that subject, but the one I'm most interested in for the purposes of today's episode is <clears throat> The sanctity of the institution of marriage and the home shall be upheld. Pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing. It goes on to explain what this means for love triangles, adultery, and premarital sex, but it also states, Sex perversion, or any inference to it, is forbidden. And some nonsense about how excessively lustful embraces are banned. So, homosexuality wasn't allowed. Oh, won't somebody think of the children, etc. Because we're all disgusting perverts who embrace too lustfully and destroy marriages. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff in that code that filmmakers wanted to work around, especially in genres like film noir. What's a good film noir without some sexy ladies, am I right, fellas? So, the fix is this. Immoral behaviour depicted in films, such as dancing too sexy, apparently? Jeez. This immoral behaviour must be punished. Women who are adulterous femme fatales go to jail, and so forth. The plot cannot condone anything the Hayes Code restricts. The characters must be punished in some way, or the film simply won't be allowed to go to screen. This creates sort of a Hayes Code hangover for later years in cinema, where in order to get past censors, homosexuals would be killed, so that the piece of media wasn't seen as promoting that lifestyle. It wasn't just in films, either. Around the 1950s, lesbian pulp fiction, and to a lesser extent, gay male pulp fiction, were being sold. But, again, to get the books past US censors, the protagonists had to die at the end, go insane, or go to jail, so the books wouldn't be seen as proselytizing homosexuality. The Comics Code Alliance was much the same, and it imposed a series of regulations on comics, including... The treatment of love romance stories shall emphasize the value of the home and sanctity of marriage. And sex perversion, or any inference to same-sex relationships, is strictly forbidden. So, that's likely where the tradition came from, but we don't have the same kinds of restrictions anymore. So why is it still happening? 
My theory is that it's part of a wider issue with how queer people are perceived, which isn't helped by their portrayals in media. A vicious cycle that'll chew you up like my washing machine did to my favourite tank top. It's considered accurate for queer people to suffer. Death, tragedy and violence is considered par for the course for us. And yeah, it is part of our history, and I'm not going to pretend that we don't suffer today. We do, all over the world. I don't think these stories shouldn't be told or explored, but they are the majority of stories that get seen. Just so straight audiences can, what, pat themselves on the back for having the correct emotional response to our pain? Without actually having to change any of their potentially homophobic assumptions, behaviours, microaggressions. You get your supposedly cathartic tragedy porn, but queer people learn that we don't get happy endings. That we don't deserve them. That there's nothing at the end there but more pain for us. For added shittiness, queer death often occurs just after a relationship has been made canon or consummated. How brutal an end to their short-lived love affair. So sad. But at least now I don't have to be challenged by their non-heterosexual relationship structure anymore. Was I a little too salty there? The other trope I wanted to discuss is queering your villains. Often, queer characters are presented as villains in media, or villains are given traits that can easily be read as queer. Again, this is probably a Hayes Code hangover thing, where anyone who was sexually deviant had to be portrayed as morally reprehensible and meet a sticky end, otherwise audiences might think a film was condoning that kind of behaviour. Disney villains are a really good example of this. Scar, the goose-stepping fratricidal usurper from The Lion King, is a hair-flicking, theatrical, well-spoken and limp-wristed... limp-pawed? All trades associated with gay men. Ursula, the marriage-wrecking, voice-stealing sea witch from The Little Mermaid, borrows her appearance from a drag queen named Divine. Now, John Waters and Divine are a whole other kettle um, <laughs> that I, I maybe don't want to go into today because we've got a lot to talk about, but we might revisit that at a later date. I don't know. Divine is a contentious one. Where were we? Ace. Ace. Hades, Lord of the Underworld in Hercules, is literally flaming, and when shown in juxtaposition to the excessively macho, openly heterosexual Zeus in Hercules, appears more slender, effeminate, and eloquent. Now, if you know anything about Greek gods, <laughs> that's, yeah, not, not the most accurate thing in the entire universe, but, you know, whatever. Needless to say, the correlation between queerness and villainy doesn't leave young queers with fantastic role models. I mean, me as a baby gay, I had fun looking at these villains and being like, heck yeah, screw being like Ariel, I want to be like Ursula. But I think it's it's more, I don't know, when young queers identify with, with Disney villains, it's kind of an act of empowerment. Like, is, is this all I'm getting? Okay, I guess this is me now. I'll I'll take this and become empowered by it, and I'll have fun anyway, because I'm a resilient little trooper. In media targeted for older audiences where the characters are openly queer, they are at best promiscuous and at worst downright evil. Buffalo Bill, in Silence of the Lambs, is motivated to murder women and wears their skins because he was denied gender reassignment surgery. 
Now, Silence of the Lambs used to be one of my my favorite films, but uh, yeah, it's pretty hard to look past how crappy the implication is there for trans people. In Skyfall, the arch enemy Raoul Silver simultaneously flirts with James Bond while he tortures him. Outlander's main villain, Outlander is a novel series but also a TV show, and Outlander's main villain is Black Jack Randall. He is a sadistic soldier who rapes the male protagonist. Netflix show Orange is the New Black has a majority of queer characters who are all in prison and many of them behave promiscuously. Comics are no different. Andy Medhurst, who wrote one of my favourite essays in response to assertions that comics were encouraging juvenile delinquency and perversion, discusses how, in an effort to bring Batman back from his campy Adam West incarnation and return him to the realm of the heterosexuals, the villainous Joker became coded with more effeminate queer traits. He smacks Batman's bum, uh, non-consensually, and he also makes fun of Batman for sleeping with Robin, and Batman gets to call him a filthy degenerate. Just to, you know, underline how macho and heterosexual he is by comparison. Many stories revolve around a male hero who winds up with the girl. When this paragon of masculinity and heterosexuality is contrasted with a queer-coded villain, the implication is queer equals bad. This implicitly tells audiences that they should fear queer, and queerness becomes associated with villainy in wider society as a result. I mean, a lot of these queer male villains end up touching people non-consensually, there's, there's a lot of violence and murder, it's sort of like, it, it's almost as if you can't be queer without being an awful human. You know, Blackjack Randall is like this because he's gay or bisexual, and it's not, he's a disgusting sadist, but that's linked intrinsically with his queerness. The expression of his villainy is tied so tightly to his expression of not heterosexuality that you can't remove them. So we've covered two tropes here, the bury your gaze and the queering your villains. Now I want to talk about how these two work together. Um, to do that I am going to have to summarize some pretty heavy plot points from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Puella Madoka Magica. So Willow Rosenberg is possibly the poster child for this phenomenon. Her girlfriend Tara is killed after the two reconcile and she flips her witch shit and goes completely dark side. She kills Tara's murderer gruesomely and goes on to wreak havoc in the town. Her use of magic is framed as an addiction by the show, and was the reason behind her initial conflict with Tara. So there is a lot of layers in this whole deal, but I wanted to zero in on the specific use of these tropes. Willow's reaction is painted as irrational. This amount of anger and grief is not okay because she's hurting other people. Yeah, it's not okay to hurt other people. But contrast this with any number of male hero vengeance quests when their loved ones die. Sure, it's still acknowledged that killing people is bad, for the most part, but male heroes are often shown in this type of scenario, straight male heroes, are often shown in this type of scenario with a lot more compassion for their wrongdoings, whereas Willow becomes the big bad of this season. The options for how Willow can express her grief is limited. 
Of course, hurting people is bad, but again, Buffy beats up villains all the time and kills them. The show distinguishes between these two in that Tara's murderer is a human, and Willow's method of destroying him is way gross. Like, it's not the tidy stab it with Mr. Pointy and turn into dust that Buffy can do. Unlike Buffy, Willow's doing it from a place of hurt instead of stoic duty, and she is condemned for this. Standard caveat, I'm not endorsing murder or anything. I'm just asking you to think about how this is framed and what the ramifications are of that in a wider social context. It sort of says that women, or at least expressive feminine ones, because there's a whole other can of shit with masculine female heroes who act emotionless and stoic, like Buffy, like Katniss Everdeen, but it says that women who have feelings are incapable of reacting to this incredible stimulus sensibly. The grief goes up to an 11, and that level of feeling is condemned. Not simply the choices made in expressing it, but the amount of feelings that precipitate those actions. It's like when a male character says, you can't do that, and a woman responds with, what, because I'm a girl? And the male responds, no, because you'll die. We get a legitimate response. Framed as an unreasonable reaction because of the story's context and the creator's decisions around that. Of course audiences will conclude that Willow's actions are bad. She becomes hardcore evil. The death of Buffy's mum, Joyce, earlier in the season is treated so sensitively with a nuanced portrayal of grief. But Willow's expression of feeling is shown through evil, villainous behaviour. To be reductive for a moment, Buffy no outward displays of emotion summers, is shown as coping better. And the only other option is to become dark side violent? Like, th those are your two settings. Suck it up or completely lose your shit. There doesn't appear to be a middle ground. Buffy the Vampire Slayer does this again with the character Anya, who just loses her shit and becomes a demon when her heart is broken. You know, there's there's no way for a woman to to express emotions without that coming with with awful behavior it's don't express it and do the right thing or express it and become a villain there's no express it and do the right thing so that's all to do with the portrayal of women for queer women it's a nasty double blow it says you can't be saved you cannot be redeemed there are no happy endings for you and you will deserve it because look at how you react when you're hurt because you can't take the heaping pile of shit dumped on you on the daily and you react negatively. You prove that you aren't worth being happy. And if you somehow transcend your irrational evil natures, you'll get shot by a stray bullet to be someone else's tragedy. This trope isn't only in Buffy, of course. The plot of the anime Puella Madoka Magica and the film Madoka Rebellion is complex, but I'll do my very best to summarize. Magical girls make wishes, and then an alien called Incubators grants them powers. If the magical girl succumbs to despair, she becomes a witch. Magical girls can prevent themselves from becoming witches by destroying them. The alien incubator encourages this cycle of despair because the transformations of magical girls to witches gives them energy. Madoka breaks this cycle by wishing for no more witches. Hamura is a magical girl whose wish was to save Madoka's life, and it is made clear that she has an intense and probably romantic feelings for Madoka. In the film Rebellion, 
Hamura realizes that the incubators are trying to trap Madoka and prevent her from stopping these witch transformations. So Hamura succumbs to despair and becomes a witch in a sealed environment to prevent Madoka from saving her and the incubators catching Madoka. Madoka breaks through anyway since she's basically got godlike powers at this point and Hamura traps her there, transforming herself from a witch into a literal demon. Whew, that's a lot, huh? Basically, we've got a case of a lesbian trying to save her girlfriend from death, which we end up witnessing a lot anyway because time travel powers, but in doing so, her desire to save Madoka is achieved through evil action. She's trapped Madoka against her will and prevented her from saving anyone else the way Madoka wishes to. The strength of her feelings for Madoka, her willingness to sacrifice herself, her desire to stop the incubators from getting to them are all portrayed as evil. The fact that Madoka can never understand what Homura was trying to save her from, and Homura becoming a witch and then devil, they're all punishments for Homura having such powerful feelings in the first place. Again, we've got this association with queer people and not respecting consent. Their evil actions are so intrinsically linked to their queerness that you can't separate them in the plot. Instead of validating the strength of love and anger and pain that women experience, the combination of these tropes and their story choices condemn them. There is no middle ground for Willow or Hamura. As a queer, you either die or you become the villain. Now, I think both Buffy and Madoka are really interesting stories, and there is something empowering about seeing queer women push back. But it's kind of like identifying with Disney villains when you're a kid, you know? You take what you can get. It doesn't make it good representation. And the stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. With these tropes of dead queers and evil gays working together, we see women pushed to breaking point and then demonized for breaking, which subtly justifies their previous punishments. We know you have this darkness in you, so instead of kindness and compassion, basically we will torture the puppy until she becomes feral and then say, we told you so. I mean, Willow and Hamura have kind of a lot in common in terms of being quiet nerds who are really shy and don't know how to talk to girls, and then as they become more sure of their power and more powerful, they become evil. Compare that to Madoka, who chooses to take her lumps and then sacrifice her very existence to save others. Or Tara, who was patient and kind and only wanted to help her girlfriend through her addiction. What option do queer women have between these? Take everything the world throws at you and strive to be pure and kind until you die? Or fight back to keep what's yours and be evil in doing so? Because there's no way to do that and be good, apparently. Have you heard of the trope fridging? I bet you have. It's when a woman is killed off to forward the story arc of a man, and the trope is named for a Green Lantern comic where the woman was literally stuffed into a fridge. It's pretty fucking gruesome. I'm so sorry. This misogynistic trope ties in here as well. Queer women are killed off to further the arcs of their partners in much the same way as is done for male characters, and it's somehow supposed to be progressive? Like, yay, look, there are gays. Never mind that that one dies. You get the violent revenge quest that you love seeing men do. Equality! No. I don't really have a conclusion here. 
It's mostly just a crash course in depressing shitty tropes that I'll refer back to in future episodes. If you want to find out more about these tropes, check out Rowan Ellis or Riley J. Dennis on YouTube. They both unpack this stuff really well. For further reading, I really enjoyed Andy Medhurst's Batman Deviants and Camp essay that I referred to earlier. Since this episode has been a bit of a bummer, I'd like to draw your attention to some really great queer rep in this very neighbourhood. Promised Land is a children's book by Adam Reynolds and Chaz Harris. It's illustrated by Christine Luton and Queerly There's own artist Bo Moore. It's about a prince and a farm boy who fall in love. And I think it's a really great fairy tale to read to young kids. Their next project is Maiden Voyage, and that's a fairy tale about two badass lady seafaring adventurers who fall in love on the high seas. There's a Kickstarter that closes real soon. It might even be closed by the time this airs. Oops. Um, so be sure to check it out and show them some support. The other thing I want to recommend is my current obsession. That's a Dungeons and Dragons podcast by three brothers and their dad called The Adventure Zone. It has its flaws, but I'm completely in love with it. The boys try really hard for some positive representation, and while there are a few slip-ups in the early days, I think the later episodes do a fine job of subverting shitty tropes and giving me the queer representation that I can really cheer for. It's a tough thing to recommend because I don't want to spoil anything for you, but it's worth sticking it out. The most important thing for me was that the creators recognised where they went wrong, acknowledged their ignorance as four cishet white dudes, and worked on listening to their audience and making it better. Far be it for me to hand out cookies for stuff queer folk do all the time and get less credit for, but at the same time I did want to highlight that there is hope, and it's totally worthwhile to expect people who aren't queer to portray queer people better. If you need some joy but can't quite devote time to a 69-episode podcast, I believe the new Steven Universe is out, and that's only 11 minutes of your day, so go watch that. Who am I kidding? You won't be able to stop at 11 minutes. Thanks to Saf and the Not Saf for Work podcast network for hosting us. Please subscribe to the podcast feed on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at QueerlyThere or email me, QueerlyTherePodcast at gmail.com. Check out the other podcasts on the network. I'm particularly into Woe Nessie at the moment, and we've got a new show called Sapphic Skywalk for all your gay Star Wars needs, which is so thoroughly my jam, and I'm very excited to listen to it. Thanks, Bo Moore, for our brilliant album art, and thanks, Danny Yurikova, for our theme song. I'll be tabling at Wellington Zinefest with Danny on the 18th of November, uh, so if you're in Wellington, come say hi. I hope you have a day as beautiful and wholesome as good queer storytelling. Talk to you next time! more for our brilliant element I've been talking for about an hour so please forgive me I spat on my mic a little bit I'm very sorry I'd like to draw your attention to some really but in doing so her desire to save Majoka Majoka
it's relevant. I don't have to tell you that it's relevant, okay? Just trust me that it's relevant. And, like, I wrote a really big essay on this for class. And so parts of this will be, like, really well researched and make a lot of sense. And other parts of it will just be me rambling and making no sense because I'm very, very tired. Please give me a break. Uh, <laughs> let's just try that fucking sentence again, shall we, Rob? <clears throat> The correlation between queerness and villainy doesn't leave lung, lung queers. The practice can be traced back to the 1930s most, most... My life is a shambles. I need a drink. Water, not alcohol. I'm pretty straight edge. It's like the only thing that's straight about me. Whenever I go off script, it's always a bit of a crapshoot. I don't know. <laughs> According to the GLAD report, uh, that's, I should look up what GLAD actually bloody stands for, shouldn't I? It's like gay and lesbian something something. Hopefully you can't actually hear that truck in the background. We'll find out. If you fridge women for a vengeance quest, you clearly have no chill. That's terrible and insensitive, and there's a helicopter, so clearly I'm not supposed to say that. The audio gods have decided that I can't make a joke. I don't know. It's not really the kind of episode where puns are great. It's totally really off. I mean, the fact that I'm calling it the gay, the bad, and the dead is pretty bad. Stop recording, Rowan. Jesus Christ.